Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. With its desolate eyes, miles from the sunrise, the darkness inviting to me, the insomnia's lullaby. A siren is playing its song in the distance. Hi, this is Colin. So as a host today, I'm sort of a method actor. Because the show is about insomnia, and I got a bad night of sleep last night. I didn't do it to prepare Brando-like for my role, but it did happen. Uh, and uh, nonetheless, here we are. Uh, or, or perhaps, ideally, here we are. So, and, and I should also confess that I'm, I'm not a good sleeper. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, I'm a, I am a good sleeper by comparison to some people uh, who struggle with it even more. As we go along today, we are going to talk a little bit about the nature of sleep, about our attitudes towards sleeping and wakefulness. We're going to talk towards the end to somebody who has tried all the latest technological fixes to get a good night's sleep. But we're going to begin by uh, talking to sort of the prose poet uh, of insomnia, uh, someone who has uh, written in a very celebrated way about her own struggles with that. Uh, and that is Marina Benjamin, writer and senior editor at Eon Magazine. If you listen to the show a lot, you know that we have done more shows about things that were in Eon Magazine than we have done about anything else. She's written five books. Her latest memoir is Insomnia. She's also the author of The Middle Paws and Garden Among Fires, a lockdown anthology. Uh, Marina Benjamin, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. So you've written an entire book about your thrashings with insomnia. So it's a, a difficult thing to talk about uh, in uh, a much more condensed way. But give people a sense. What is your relationship with sleep and insomnia? Well, I was listening to your introduction right now, and you said you had a bad night of sleep. And I thought, oh, it's so interesting. When you have a bad night of sleep once, and you're normally a habitually a good sleeper, that bad night can feel quite kind of adrenalizing and exciting. Um, and you think, oh, me, you know, maybe insomnia is not so bad after all. You know, one night without sleep can leave you quite um, alert and energized. But to ne- not be able to sleep, you know, night after night, constitutionally, month after month, it's a very different kind of experience. And I, I suppose I wanted to let your listeners know that you know, the kind of, it can drive you to a sort of psychological edge of yourself where you just feel desperate, really. And you feel like capable of extreme behaviors because you are already existing at the extreme limit of yourself. It's a very strange place to be. It's vertiginous. You know, you feel that the ground is pulling away from you and alertness has left you. And there's a real split, I think, as well between between a sense of yourself as you know your competent self that is receding into the 
imagined distance and then this new self that's this effectively this kind of you know zombie self that ghost walks through the through, through the days because of the sleep debt that you've accumulated and to think of it in terms of debt actually is a good way of thinking about it because sleep poverty is like financial poverty you know it gnaws at you um, it obsesses you you can't think of anything but sleep and yet you can't get it so it's I don't ever want to talk about pills or, you know, medications or anything like that. When I when I talk about insomnia, I want to talk about this kind of incredibly extreme human condition. Right. And and well, give us a sense, too, for you. So, OK, some people cannot sleep because they are worried about worried about a specific thing or they had a disturbing conversation uh, or they watched something close to bedtime that upset them. That's not your world. Your world is more. It's not one thing that's keeping you awake. It's not one experience. It's something much more bred in the bone, I sense. Yeah, I would say it was constitutional. Um, I've always been insomniac. As a child, I was insomniac. And um, it's come back in uh, jags throughout my life. So there have been periods when I've had reasonably good runs of sleep, but not as many as I would like. And more often than not, the insomnia is my um, general state of being. And when I'm awake at night, it could be anything. It could be anything that wakes me and that keeps me awake. So it's sleep maintenance that's the problem. Mm. Um, I can't get back to sleep. I'm more awake at night than I am during the day. I, I write in the book about my mind being on fire. It just feels like I've dissociated. So I know that my body's exhausted. I know consciously that my brain is exhausted. And yet another part of my brain is saying, I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm awake, and I can't stop thinking. And then one of the things that I wanted to do in the book that I wrote was try and unpick what does it mean when your brain is is insisting like this, insisting on being heard. What is it that your unconscious mind is trying to tell you? And, so, and it, yeah, we did an entire show not too long ago about mm. liminalism or liminality, that sort of threshold mm. state. Uh, and, and that's a big part of this, too. Right. There is a sense in which the state you arrive at during your nights is is more of a borderland and maybe a, a one where your consciousness is is functioning a little bit differently than say mine is right now yes that idea of borderlands and thresholds and trespass the wrongness of being awake at night um the crossing of an illicit border um all those things were really of interest to me um, because they set a framework for thinking about insomnia that makes it that it, it just puts it in a different dimension um, to the idea that it's a kind of you know uh, endocrinal issue or a um, you know a simple problem of anxiety. It sort of it. I think it just sets by putting sleep sleep and wakefulness um, together, if you like, into the same box. Um, I think I think you have a much more fruitful way about thinking about, I suppose, the way the human psyche works um, and how it's tuned to darkness and light, not just to day and night, which in some ways is an artificial. It's only one part of uh, darkness and light, darkness and light, good and evil, um, you know, uh, vision and blindness, uplift and descent. You know, we have lots of. Um, associative ways of thinking about darkness and light that I think have a role in insomnia. 
there's a way in which you are in a heightened state. You say, talk about your mind on fire as if all the light switches on your brain have been turned on. And there's also, I mean, I've experienced insomnia enough to know that there is a sense of specialness. If you're awake and nobody else is, if you're walking around the house and the neighborhood, you look out and you can see that it's quiet and you start maybe hearing noises from the night uh, that you wouldn't be aware of if you were sleeping through them. It can be kind of, there's a specialness to it, even if you're kind of in agony. Yeah, absolutely. There is a specialness to it. And I, I found it very interesting to read in the literature. I mean, there's almost like a delusional quality to the specialness. So, for example, there were studies that really interested me when I was doing research for my book um, about sleep-deprived workers like doctors and taxi drivers who had a complete, uh, completely uh delusional idea about their cognitive capacities. They didn't realize they were impaired. Um, but it's very easy to show in, in quite simple, uh, you know, cognitive tests when people are, when their alertness is impaired or, um, you know, their ability to problem solve is impaired and we're talking like simple problem solving. So that idea of uh, the insomniac's um, aggrandisement, if you like, a sense of grandeur, a sense of being special, I think was definitely something I recognize in insomnia. And it has its quaint and beautiful aspects too, because I think, you know, you do, you look out of the window and you see utter darkness, it's quiet, you get become attuned to the sounds of, of the night. There's that lovely kind of receptive quality to it, because we spend our days, I think I say in the book at one point, we spend our days transmitting um, all day transmitting, broadcasting, and at night it's quite nice to to receive. And so there's a quiet, calm pocket of the insomniac experience, I think, that where you can be a receiver rather than a transmitter. But that delusional sense of specialness is also in play. And in, in the book, I, I I kind of bring it in by by talking about cosmicity. You know, you look up at the stars at night and you feel this connection. You feel this kind of rather grandiose connection to, to the heavens, if you like. And there's something comical about that, but there's an animal about that as well, because it kind of peels away the levels of uh, cultural identity that we have. And we're tuning into something much more primal, I think, when we're insomniac. And yeah, I mean, I, I think there are other dimensions to it too. I'm not particularly a religious person, but I think that there are um, spiritual aspects to that cosmicity too, you know. And I think also on a, a mental level, you feel very porous when you're open to nature and you're open to this idea of connecting up to the stars, if you like. There's a there's a porousness in play. And, um, and that, for me, was another way of, of uh, another hook, another way of prizing open a different aspect of insomnia that I thought could be quite fruitful and interesting to explore. It, it does seem that there may be something to do with gender in all of this, something to do with women versus men. Uh, women seem to experience uh, insomnia more. Ariana Huffington, uh, who was a terrible insomniac uh, and passed out from exhaustion, broke a cheekbone and got five st stitches over her eye, uh, then became kind of an anti-insomnia crusader. But she's declared lack of sleep as a feminist issue, and she encourages women to get at least seven hours of shut-eye each night. So, and, and I know for you, there's questions about this. How, how is it connected to being a woman? It's a feminist issue. 
on many levels, actually. So on the level that Ariana Huffington writes about it, for example, it's a feminist issue on a hormonal level. So women have specific periods or phases of their developmental lives, their biological lives that make them prone in a very serious way to insomnia. So during adolescence, during pregnancy, post-pregnancy, the cycle, the uh, menstrual cycle, there are profound spikes in, in not being able to sleep. And of course, during menopause. So those aspects of uh, sleep being a gender, uh, a feminist issue is, is, is very um, palpable and forthright. But I think it's also a feminist issue in other ways. I think the idea that women are meant to be vigilant, i.e. wakeful, that they have to uh, police their own boundaries all the time because their personhood is not as taken for granted as the male personhood. Uh, and we know this from Simone de Beauvoir, you know, a woman is made, not born. A woman is continuously remaking herself day by day. And that vigilance and that attentiveness is the same kind of attentiveness that comes to light at night when you're awake. And I think also there's that sense of when you go to sleep, the mind has to let the body go. And women, you could argue that women find that harder to do because of this attentiveness, this need for vigilance. And I know that lots of women will recognize that because when I talk about my book, when I've done public readings of the book, I'm, I'm always hearing from, from women this, this profound recognition about you know how this need to be vigilant all the time and the anxiety that comes with that. Yes, uh, actually, one image that stays with me is that the actress Tallulah Bankhead, uh, who had sleep problems, would hire gay men, uh, whom she referred to as caddies, uh, to hold her hand until she drifted off. So she would feel safe with these men and safe that there was someone there. Uh, yes. And they would be her, her sleep caddies. Yeah, how interesting. Well, I mean, you know, there's something to the... Uh, I, do, I mean, I, you know, we, we, we lull babies to sleep, don't we? Mm -hmm. We lull other people to sleep. There's something that I would recognize there, that human contact that allays the anxiety of crossing that threshold. That's what we do with our children. Um, right. I was also very interested in the idea, though, of um, pictorial depictions um, in, in paintings, in literature, in classicism, in statuary of the sleeping woman. And what did that mean? And what kind of gendered meanings were being inscribed in, in that imagery that we take for granted? I was in the, in the book, I talk quite a lot about um, Edward Byrne Jones's beautiful um, pictorial painting series and monumental paintings, four, four of them, of the Briar Rose. And people thought Byrne Jones was um, someone who in his, in his own way was was always attracted to these mythic uh, stories and that there was something soporific about them and that there was a kind of quietude to him. But I would argue actually that he was very much engaged in an argument with this idea of enchanted sleep, that, that it was that he he despised the passivity of that enchantment and in fact in 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 his other life as a kind of um, an activist and in his relationship with William Morris, he wanted to institute a kind of revolution in the arts. So he was anything but soporific and hmm. um, was very much a man of, uh, of the modern times. But he's not read that way very often. No. You know, in the book, one thing that I'm intrigued by in terms of legend, in terms of myth, is that 
when I think about it, it seems as though the women who stay awake are the heroic ones. So Penelope uh, in the Odyssey is staying awake. She has this kind of ruse where she weaves something during the day and then unweaves it at night. And this has a little bit to do with keeping all these suitors uh, at bay while she waits for the return of Odysseus. Scheherazade, you know, famously uh, tells stories to the drowsy emperor uh, to avoid her own execution. And the, the people who are sleeping, Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and people like that, that they're the afflicted ones. Their sleep is sort of seen as something that victimizes you uh, in fairy tales. Absolutely. I think, you know, sleep, the idea of enchanted sleep is like shutting off of your potential of your life. You know, it's arrested development. Um, and in both those stories, you know, the heroine is extremely passive, has to be brought back to life by an other, um, and a male other. And I, I, I say in the book, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like the princess and the pea so much, because the heroine of that story is a kind of, you know, bad tempered, girlish princess, you know, who is very aware and attentive to and alive to the kind of constant grit that the world throws at you. And she seemed to me to be a much better heroine. But yes, the wakeful woman, Penelope, another heroine, you know, this is a kind of, she's on a moral crusade. It's invisible, but it's it's palpable at night when she reaffirms her, by un unweaving, she reaffirms her hope. She reaffirms the idea that she will wait it out till Odysseus comes home. So um, um, the, another part of this, I think, particularly now, as you point out, if we go far back enough in history, uh, sleeping spaces are a little bit more communal. There's sort of less of that idea, this is my bed and there's a maximum of one other person in the bed with me. But most of us do sleep that way now. And, and we sleep, uh, if we are in a relationship or a marriage, in, in kind of opposition to the other person. So you, in your book, uh, describe your husband, Z, 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 as, as you've, is the nom de plume or the nom de sleep that you've given him. And he's he's an easier sleeper. I, I live with someone who is also a much easier sleeper than I. And and in, insomnia or sleep disturbances in these situations, I, I think there's they sort of take place in tandem, right? You're not sleeping and another person <laughs> is, which is very different than not sleeping all by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I was very interested in that whole idea of kind of, you know, who's present and who's absent at night, you know because insomnia is so frequently defined in terms of lack. So you, the insomniac, are seen to be lacking sleep. You're the mm. deprived one. And yet it doesn't feel that way when you're awake at night because you feel so manifestly present and so exquisitely alert, sometimes painfully so, as if your skin's been scrubbed off, whereas your sleeping partner in their blissful um, absence is the one who's not there. They're the one who's gone. Uh, they've been snatched by sleep. Um, <laughs> which in a way takes us back to my original, and I'm sure for many insomniacs, that childhood fear of, of going to sleep, feeling as if, you know, where, where did you go? Where, mm -hmm. where were you being snatched to and by whom? And would you ever wake up again? And so I think, you know, a lot of children have that primal fear of sleep. And I don't know in how many, you know, I don't know, I'd be interested to know what the figures were. Have anybody, has anybody studied children and their lack of sleep? how many children you know are refusers sleep refusers but yeah and and that idea as well that you know we think we think of sleeping as a 
very solitary, lonely activity. But the reality of it is that most of us share a bed with somebody and sharing a bed is also one of the most intimate things that you can do if you assume or if you agree that in sleep you disappear. Um, so you are more vulnerable in sleep perhaps than in any other situation in your life. And yet you share that space with somebody. Yes, technically I share my bed with both a person and a dog. The dog's kind of big and Sometimes I feel as though I'm being kicked or hit by the person, and it turns out that the dog is kicking me. <laughs> yes, um, uh, I, I, but our dog is let up sometimes, is mm -hmm. let up onto the bed, but then it becomes uh, it becomes the object that enables sleep, actually, because it's um, a little bit like Tallulah Bankhead being kind of stroked to sleep. If, if you're the one who's snuggling up with the dog, I think it can have a similar effect. Oh, yes, and actually, we're going to talk about this in the third segment, but um, you can now get like a little $600 robot that will do that with you, too. Oh, All right, really? we, we, yes, we, uh, it's an industry, believe me. Um, we'll, uh, we'll talk more uh, with our guest and with another guest, uh, so don't, don't fall asleep. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. I've got the blues going round in my bed. And we're back. We're talking about insomnia today. Maria Benjamin is still with us. Her latest memoir is Insomnia. We are now joined by Ruben Nyman, uh, a psychologist, clinical assistant professor of medicine, uh, and the sleep and dream specialist at the University of Arizona at Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. And guess what? He wrote a piece about sleep uh, and insomnia for Eon. See, this Eon is, we're just an outpost uh -huh. of, of Eon, I think, at this point. Um, so, you know, uh, Ruben, you started, you, you heard Marina say in the previous segment uh, about that sort of mystery of sleep. Where do you go? Who takes you away? When you're a child, you may wonder, you know, what's happening here? And you still may wonder as an adult, you know, what's happening to me? Am I being snatched from my waking life and taken to another place? But at least in antiquity, sleep was, I think, understood in a different way, almost literally as a gift from the gods, right? Uh, absolutely. I think it's important to circle back just a little bit here because we've been talking about insomnia, which essentially is understood as the lack of sleep, but without, and this goes on everywhere in sleep medicine, without actually asking and trying to answer the question of what is sleep? You know, what, what did the people in antiquity sense that we've lost touch with? And, you know, if you, you look at sleep today, number one, we define it negatively. And what I mean by that is we define sleep in terms of what it's not. If you ask the average person, you ask sleep specialists what sleep is, they'll say, well, it's, it's not waking, it's not consciousness, it's not awareness. And, you know, the technical term for true sleep, for delta sleep in sleep medicine is non-REM. What is it? It's not dreaming. So we're, we're kind of evasive here, and I think this is really important. We're, we're not really looking at what sleep is. We're looking at, at the absence of waking, and that's not what sleep is. Another part of this is that, that, that sleep is presumed to be unconscious. And I think in antiquity, there was a real different sense of sleep. It wasn't simply being taken away from waking life. It was a classic Beatles song, Golden Slumbers, uh, uh, came out, I think, in 1972, uh, where Paul McCartney took an old lullaby 
And it starts with once there was a way to get back home. And the notion was that sleep didn't simply take you away from waking. It took you to another place. It took you home. It took you to another sphere in consciousness. You know, but today I think most of us have come to believe that, that sleep is, is a physiological function. You know, what sleep medicine has done over the past 50 years or so, we've devised all of these measures of sleep. And, and now we believe that sleep is what we measure. Uh, we, it's similar to what we've done with intelligence for 100 years. So th the brain doesn't sleep. Uh, we do. Pe people sleep and, and people dream. And I think we need to get back to a sense of balance about that. I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think sleep medicine has done a tremendous amount of good. But I think it also has some really serious biases. And I'll say the bottom line with insomnia is despite all of the effort and funding and training and research that's focused on this, things are not getting better. In fact, there's some evidence suggesting that despite all of that, things are getting worse. We're doing something wrong. Right. So we've gone from, you know, Paul McCartney promising us that smiles await you when you rise mm -hmm. to becoming John Lennon. I'm so tired. I give yeah. you everything I've got for a little peace of mind. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a little bit more like that. And so I think there's sort of two things that you're highlighting here. And, and so let's look at both of them. One of them is that, well, for example, Vincent Van Gogh uh, had terrible insomnia. And, mm -hmm. and the story is that he would sprinkle his pillow and his mattress with camphor, which is a cousin of turpentine. And there, one of the theories about his insanity was that it was eventually brought on by just sleeping on this, uh, on all these fumes. But we're a little bit like that right now, right? I mean, one of the things, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. I take a little bit of lorazepam. Um, I take a little Benadryl. I just, uh, in the way that you're talking about Ruben Nyman, I just, I want to not be awake, uh, which is different, I think, than choosing some kind of I don't know, elevated state of sleep. Right, right. You know, so what we know about what we call sleeping pills or sleep medicines is that th there's nothing that actually reproduces natural sleep. But what these medications do is they induce unconsciousness. And when we believe that sleep is unconsciousness, uh, we think that these medicines are actually giving us sleep. And, you know, obviously not everything that's brown is chocolate. And we need to be a whole lot more discerning. But, but the people have been encouraged to turn away from their own experience of sleep. And I think this is the core issue, that, that sleep is not what the brain does. It's what we do. Th there's a phenomenology to sleep. There's a subjectivity. There's a mythology to it. I, I, today, many of my new patients come in with a ream of data they've downloaded from their sleep tracker. And when I ask them, how's their sleep, they hand me all these papers. And, and I look at them, I want to know what their experience is. What, what's it like for you to sleep or to not sleep? Or when does it happen? And what are your thoughts and what are your feelings? We need to get back to that. Because there, there, there are nuances to sleep that are so much more telling and critical than the, the, the squiggly EEG measures we get you know, from, do, from doing overnight right. sleep studies. Sleep is not a number. So Marina Benjamin, as you're listening to this, and I believe I heard you say in the first segment, you're just going to not, you're not going to do it with pills, right? No Ambien for you. Uh, what is your attitude towards all this? Do, do, I mean, you could probably achieve some kind of pseudo sleep uh, with the right nostrums, but you're not going to take them? I, I love listening to Ruben Nyman because I'm completely in agreement with him. And I think he's onto something here, which is that, you know, um, the medicalization of sleep has shown both sleep and, and insomnia of, of a kind of um, 
human historical um, multi-dimensional kind of richness has undermined the I suppose that the, yeah the human nature of what it is that we do at night um, I do take pills um, I don't take them very regularly because I don't like the way that they make me feel during the day and I'm inclined to agree that they have this blunting effect of not replacing sleep but just um, blotting out wakefulness and mm. it is a different thing um, and all of them have different side effects uh, which I find very unwelcome so for me it was more interesting to navigate a different way of accommodating insomnia rather than going into battle with it so the, so that's one of the problems or right? that idea that we've kind of uh, tried to to medicalize sleep and numerize sleep and yes I sometimes uh, in the past I've worn a Fitbit and I would wake up in the morning and it would just give me grades and I'm actually the kind of person who responds to uh, that kind of thing uh, uh, pretty well but it's 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 obviously something of an illusion but Ruben the other thing that we've done is to prioritize hyper arousal right I mean so much of modern life is how awake and alert can you get? How how, right. how many right. how much multitasking can you do? So so you know if that is seen as the most exalted state, uh, and we're you know dousing ourselves with caffeine and Adderall and God knows what else to get there, um, that's going to create a problem over on the sleep side. Yeah, I, I think you're pointing in a really interesting direction. I mean, when you open, you, you refer to yourself as not a good sleeper. My thought was, we can't understand what a good sleeper is without understanding what or addressing what, what a good waker is and what a good dreamer is. What you're referring to, Colin, I think of as, as a clash between industrial culture and consciousness. And sleep, more, more so than a medical issue, is a consciousness issue. And we, we live in a world that's wake-centric. And basically, we, we believe that waking life is it. It's, it's the gold standard for consciousness. And, and sleep and dreams are secondary. We, we need to sleep. We need to dream uh, because they serve uh, waking life. They make us better waking people. And, and I think this is a huge error. And so hyperarousal, you know, technically, clinically, is an important concept because most people, not all, but most people with insomnia are hyperaroused. I think of it uh, as an addiction to waking life. Uh, we're addicted, and waking life in our world is largely mediated by thinking, and people are in thinking all the time. So, so this is where cognitive behavioral approaches come in. And let me just mention, I, I, we, we have data suggesting that they are much more effective than using medications, and, and, and particularly in the long run, and they're safer. But you know what? Uh, they also don't work. They don't, they don't work all that well uh, because they keep us stuck in thinking. And, and to heal sleep and dreaming and waking, to heal consciousness, it, it's not about a shift in thinking. It requires a shift out of thinking. We really need to get out of ordinary, normal waking consciousness. When we do that, then, then waking is modulated by these rhythmic, uh, rhythmic presence of sleep and of dreams. It's it, this natural circadian process. And so it, it slows waking down. It, uh, it infuses it with with a, a kind of serenity that we can lift up out of our sleep. It also imbues it with with a, sort of this broader dreamy way of seeing life. So we we need to shift out of this you know ordinary American waking consciousness makes us sick. 
Right. You know, it's, it fascinates me that um, there are podcasts now that are aimed at uh, people with insomnia that consist almost entirely of very mundane conversations. I mean, intentionally mundane conversations. And I have to confess that one of the things that I do if I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm having, as Marina does, sleep maintenance problems is I have, I have a book on tape or an audible book. It's it's on my phone uh, and it's called The Four Agreements. And it's this kind of Toltec-based uh-huh, spiritual uh-huh. thing. And it's narrated by Peter Coyote. And I'm not at all, Marina, embracing the four agreements, but it just puts me right to sleep. I'm just completely familiar with Peter Coyote's voice and what he's going to say. And it's not going to excite me at all. And it seems that sometimes that, you know, I mean, Ruben talks about kind of hyper arousal uh, or over arousal. Maybe part of sleeping also is just kind of embracing the mundane. Um, Are you addressing that to me? Yeah, Yeah, why not? Um, yeah, maybe you're onto something there. I don't know. I mean, I, one of the things that I was reminded of when I was listening to Ruben just now is that overthinking, chattering monkey brain that keeps you awake at night sometimes feel dis- it dissociated. So you feel sometimes, I do anyway, split in two. And I feel like there is a part of me that's exhausted by the chattering monkey brain marina who won't let the other me sleep. So I, I kind of feel like I've got a double consciousness at night, mm. one that's kind of desperate to sleep, that's weary, and then overlaying that is a, a kind of an, like another self that's split off, that I have no control over, and that is bent on torturing me. But that, um, that Ruben, that kind of gets to that whole question of co-consciousness, right? That we have, yeah. we have this idea, if I'm awake, that's when I'm, uh, A, useful, uh, B, in control more or less of what I'm doing, uh, and when I'm asleep, I'm something else. Uh, yeah, the, the great mistake is the belief that we can leverage waking consciousness to get to sleep. And we can't. And this is where people get stuck. They get stuck at the gates of sleep, at, at the bridge to sleep. Uh, it's not sleepiness that actually gets us to sleep. Uh, and we can't get sleepy by, by, by being awake, by thinking. People keep using, you know, thinking is a problem-solving function, essentially. And people get stuck at the gates. But the, the bridge, uh, the segue, if you will, the portal between waking consciousness and sleep is dreaming. And, and this is a huge issue today in our culture and in, in sleep medicine. We have forgotten dreaming. I've argued for years that, that my field needs to be called sleep and dream medicine. What we consider Western medicine arose out of the work of the image of Asclepius, the, the Greek god of healing. And his primary intervention focused on dreaming. So we're now learning, uh, number one, how critical dreaming is. And it turns out that much, I, I would even argue most of what we call insomnia is not sleep loss. It turns out to be dream loss. And culture-wide, our lifestyles today uh, severely damage our dreams. And, you know, there, there's a piece that came out in Medscape yesterday, uh, Sonia Ancola Israel, a colleague of mine in in San Diego just published a great piece of research showing there's a strong correlation between dream loss and increased mortality. So we, we need to dream more. The, the dream, Dreaming is that borderland that we were talking about earlier between waking and sleeping. Um, it, it's, it's also reflected in our relationship to, to circadian rhythms. So you, you look at life today, and in, in nature we have... We have day and night, but day and night are mediated by twilight. And we have pretty much deleted twilight from our lives. You know, th- this 
um, crepuscular uh, time, this transitional time where, you know, the French say you can't tell if what you're looking at is, is a wolf or a dog. But what we've converted twilight into rush hour, you know, we're just, we're so distracted at those times, getting ready to begin the day or wind it down. And so there's this continuity of consciousness that's represented both in, in the outer world, we can see it uh, through the day, uh, and we lose it in, in the inner world. We need to be willing to step into a dreamlike consciousness, a dusky consciousness, a consciousness that doesn't allow us to, to understand and explain the world in literal sort of mechanistic ways, a consciousness that calls for a poetic perspective of, 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 of life. Well, that's a perfect place for us to pause. We have to say a goodbye to our guest, Marina Benjamin. Her latest memoir is Insomnia. Uh, Ruben Nyman is a psychologist, clinical professor, uh, clinical assistant professor of medicine, and a sleep and dream specialist at the University of Arizona. Uh, wrote about sleep uh, for Eon. Uh, we'll take a little break here. We'll come back, you know, and <laughs> and we'll essentially betray Ruben by uh, talking about whether or not tech uh, can help you fall back to sleep. All right, we're back for our final segment here. But before we do that, I have to thank, uh, first of all, Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio running the board, making it possible for the rest of us to work remotely in this time of COVID. Uh, the producer of this particular episode is our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan. And uh, much thanks to her, too. Tomorrow, we'll be back on Friday with our usual episode, The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. And so joining us now, because as I said at the end of the last segment, one question is, we live in a world of tech. There are all kinds of things that we can uh, put around our wrists or slip over our fingers or maybe even put on our foreheads uh, and maybe some of them can help us sleep. Charlotte G set out to figure that out. She's a writer and reporter for MIT Technology Review. Uh, she wrote a piece on how she tried to hack her insomnia with technology. So uh, Charlotte G, first of all, you're in good company here. We've had a lot of insomniacs <laughs> on the show today and you are one as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm afraid to report that that is accurate. And and so, yes, there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, having read your piece, I immediately put on my phone uh, a new app that's a, a cognitive behavioral therapy thing developed by the Department of Veterans Affairs. We'll come to that uh, later, but there are all kinds of stuff out there. You started out, or you start out in the piece anyway, with gadgets. There are things that you know, essentially are tracking technologies. And one of the things they can do is track your sleep. What did you uh, experiment and what did you learn? That's exactly right. Uh, tech companies have really got their sights on our sleep these days. Uh, so the market is full of different things which promise to help you sleep or at least track your sleep. Um, I tested out all kinds of different gadgets last summer. I tried out a sleep mat, which uses sensors to track how long and how deep you sleep and um, your heart rate, even if you snore. If you use the microphone, which I didn't, <laughs> um, I tried out a ring called an Aura, which is packed with sensors. It's it's a little bit more sensitive than a watch. Um, 
But it turns out, unless a device is actually monitoring your brain activity, it just can't tell what stage of sleep you're in. Although I, uh, I want to come back, I want to come back to the aura ring for a second here too, and, and the mat for that matter. And yes, it does have a microphone in it. So, if in the middle of the night you start having erotic dreams about Oscar Isaacs, you're going to be uh, <laughs> talking to some machine anyway about them. But you know, even the, the NBA recently uh, has been experimenting with the aura ring because the, one of the things that it could possibly do is tell them when somebody's uh, COVID positive, but hasn't exhibited the symptoms, but it tells them a lot too. And for example, if you're an NBA coach and you know that one of your players only got two hours of sleep, you might not put him in the game. You might put the guy who got more sleep in the game. And when you think about that, you think about the idea of codifying, you know, and, and numerizing our, our sleep patterns, not just for ourselves, but for other people who might be interested in them. It gets a little dystopian. Uh, you know, you really might be kind of part of a, a sleepless underclass. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's pretty unhealthy to be obsessed with your sleep stats. There's even a, a word for it, orthosomnia. Um, so I, I don't think it's a positive thing for us to obsess over this. And, you know, like I said, a lot of these gadgets, they can't even really tell what, what quality of sleep you've got. So numbers alone really can only tell you so much. So you you did actually put on some kind of uh, uh, headbands uh, yeah. that go right to the brain. The dream, was this, which is spelled with two E's inexplicably, uh, headband. What, what did you find? Uh, I mean, it, it pretty much told me... You know, I slept as I thought I'd slept. Uh, there were no great surprises. Um, it's a perfectly good idea because, you know, it is based on recording brain activity, which is, you know, based in, in scientific evidence. But, you know, who wants to sleep with a headband on? <laughs> it looks ridiculous. It feels ridiculous. Uh, it's really distracting. And um, it also involved me getting out my phone to press a button to say sleep started on the app. Which, and I don't really like looking at my phone before bedtime. So it felt like a step backwards for me personally. It may work for some people, but but not for me. So, you know, we I was talking earlier to Marina Benjamin about, um, you know, having a dog in the bed. And I, it, there's a, some bad things about it because the dog thinks it's his bed and he kicks me and stuff like that. But as she says, it also can be another kind of sleep companion. But if you don't feel like having a big stinky dog with lots of bugs in his fur in your bed, you can pay $600 for a Somnox, a, a, a robot that will kind of snuggle with you. Yeah, that's right. I'm laughing at this as a cat owner because I feel like that's a that's a whole different ball game. I don't actually let my cat come in my in my bed when I'm sleeping. Um, but anyway, yeah, I tried out this robot. It's called Somnox. So it basically it's kind of like a giant kidney bean that you cuddle that breathes with you. Um, so it's meant to kind of slow down your breathing and get you into a meditative state. I mean, I just I just found it so ridiculous. <laughs> Um, it's kind of amazing that it exists. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, if possible, better to just get a person to breathe with you if they're comfortable with that. Um, that's probably going to feel a bit more natural and a bit more comforting. Right. All right. But I mean, we're talking tech here. So there's a tech version <laughs> of everything, I guess. There uh, is. There in, is. Absolutely. Including yeah. your sleep companion. All right. So um, because of you, I haven't tried it yet, but I did download this CBTI app. So cognitive behavioral ther therapy has subsets, and one of them is CBTI, actually, insomnia. Uh, and uh, you can get these things on your phone. Uh, and so tell us what you found out about them. Yeah, so basically, this is this is really strongly backed by science. So CBT is proven to work 
to intervene and stop people's insomnia. So, uh, you know, I would recommend it really highly for any anyone who is struggling to sleep. Um, I used an app called Sleepio, but like you say, there there are lots of others available. That one just happens to be to be free in in the UK. Um, just about six sessions, and I was sleeping pretty well again. Um, you have kind of weekly sessions on your phone or your laptop. And like all CBT, it's really about challenge, challenging kind of negative thoughts and beliefs. So that downward spiral of stress stress and frustration and fear, which is familiar to everyone who's had insomnia. Right. And there's a little bit, we should talk some more about this. Well, um, first of all, why do you think it worked for you? What did it do for you that kind of broke into the cycle that was keeping you up at night? Sure. So there's there's a kind of phrase about sleep, which is that it's like a cat and it only comes to you if you ignore it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a way, the CBT basically got me to stop worrying so much about about my sleep. Um, and one of the professors I spoke to who, who works at Stanford Sleep Center said it's about getting someone to stop worrying so much about their sleep. It's like teaching them how to swim. At first, they think they're drowning, but they just have to learn to ignore their own fear. So it's like, you're, you know, you can't sleep and you think to yourself, What's the worst that can happen? I have survived on four hours sleep before. And if I have to, I can do it again. So it's kind of just like intervening and stopping you from downward spiraling into this is the worst thing ever. And I'm not going to sleep and obsessing over the clock and stuff like that. So it's just all about chilling out and saying, let's see what happens, basically, and not obsessing over sleep. That is the worst thing you can do, ironically, is to obsess over it. Right. And that, that's been known by sleep experts for a long time that a lot of them say the worst thing that you can do is even to continue to lie in bed, you know, mm. struggling against your sleeplessness. You'd yeah. be better off getting up and reading presumably a fairly boring book uh, and, and then trying again. But yeah, these things, and, and I guess they do have a little bit, well, the one that I looked at, CBTI Coach, and that's uh, created by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. It does have a little bit of that notion of well, I mean, I'm very, very manipulable by things like an um, like a Fitbit, you know, because I was brought up in a house where I wasn't necessarily accepted for myself. I was accepted for things that I accomplished. Mm. And so I do notice that one of the things that these apps do is they, they do sort of at least create a framework in which you're going to accomplish something. But another thing that they do is to kind of take sleep off the table a little bit in the way that you said, or say, you know what, for the first night, cycle of nights, you're only allowed to sleep during this five hour framework. Uh, you can't even try to sleep at other times. And and somehow or other, that, that seems to help people. Yeah, I think we struggle to balance this as a society because, you know, you read blog posts by entrepreneurs and CEOs who boast about getting up at 4 a.m., which, which always kind of uh, frustrates me a bit, to be honest, because mm -hmm. you know, we all know that we should really be getting about eight hours sleep a night or roughly there, thereabouts. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you don't want to go too far to the other extreme and say, well, if you haven't got eight hours, then, you know, oh, my God, you, you know, you're going to die. So it's kind of getting that balance between get enough sleep for you to feel well. And that's basically all you need. It's all about, you know, are you satisfied with the amount of sleep you're getting? And if you are, then everything's fine. Right. And I think the other thing that these apps do, and some of them actually do provide actual individual coaching, but they do make you feel as though you're not alone in this somehow. It's not just your job to figure this out. They're going to help you figure this out. 
Um, and and that, that actually might be a little bit comforting uh, to people. Charlotte G., I have to ask you, so how's it going now? I don't need to pry into your life, but, but how are you sleeping yeah. these days? <laughs> I'm sleeping pretty well. I've had the odd off night uh, during lockdown, which I think, to be honest, uh, is common for a lot of people. It's not like we're short of things to worry about right now. That so. is great. I, I misjudged the clock. We have to stop right here. But Charlotte <laughs> thank G., you. thank you so much for sharing everything. Thanks for listening. Get some good sleep.